Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and it's good to be with you. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. I bet you've heard that before. The idea that men's brains are wired for logical systems and map reading, while women's brains excel at emotional intelligence and intuition, is deeply culturally embedded. And it's complete garbage. Professor Gina Rippon is an international researcher in the field of cognitive neuroscience, and in her book, The Gendered Brain, she looks at the infuriating persistence of the idea of brain difference and its misogynistic roots. She's in the studio with interviewer Fauzia Ibrahim. Now, this book started out as a quest to look at how autistic brains are different. How did you get from that to gendered brains? <laughs> well... Working in the autism community, one of the things that is very characteristic of autism is how variable the community is. And if you're working at the kind of neuroscience level, it's also clear that there's a huge range in how brains process the world differently. So I thought, well, I'll go back to the most fundamental difference that we've all accepted, as you, as you mentioned, that male brains are different from female brains. And I thought, we'll have a look at that as a kind of baseline mm. from which to work. Uh, and what I found when I started really going into the research literature, both in terms of brain and behaviour, quite surprised me. <laughs> what did you find? Well, first of all, a historical fact, all of the kind of brain-based theories about men's and women's brains arrived before we could actually study brains. So there was great assertions about the inferior woman's brain and being smaller or however they mm. thought was the best way of characterising it. But the only brains that they then had access to were either dead or diseased or damaged brains. But the theories that were evolved um, were very firmly based on men's brains are like this, women's brains are like that. They're organised differently. They process information differently. And that was a given right up to the end of the last century. But that wasn't based on any scientific evidence. It was based basically on social constructs. The theory um, evolved with a grain of truth, as a lot of those kind of stories do evolve. But it wasn't really clear that the kind of major differences which were claimed, which were also linked with the idea that we have two sides of the brain, right and the left, and the right brain does one kind of thing and the left brain does another. Mm. And that kind of got conflated neatly with the male brain, female brain argument. So there was some the wonderful... male brain being right and female brain being left. That was, yes, well, the, the male brain, if you take the left side of the brain as being the logical mathematical processing ah. side, then in theory, there was a greater emphasis in males. So the suggestion was that women were more right-brained, mm. I think perhaps is a way of putting it. Mm. But they were really ways, sort of frameworks of thinking about the brain is organised and this is actually how it's organised differently in men and women. Yeah. So you, you challenge... Um, the notion of stereotyped genders. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your family life. <laughs> Growing up, did your parents typify <laughs> genders? Was I, it, you know, the traditional? Yeah, very. I mean, certainly... And, Yes, because when I was growing up, it, it was still very much the idea that the woman was the homemaker, the mother was the homemaker, the father was the breadwinner. It's curious because you're a twin uh, and, and your brother, your twin brother, wasn't considered as academically uh, inclined. And yet he was sent to a boys' academic Catholic boarding school. You, on the other hand, shined in your <laughs> studies, but you were sent to a girls' non-academic Catholic convent instead. Yes. 
Well, I think that was, again, the reflection of the time. And the idea very much, it was a convent school as well. So I think there were two end aims for uh, the nuns, for the, the girls in their care. Either you were going to be a nun yourself or you are going to become a, a good wife and mother. Mm. So those were the skills. It was the time when you could actually take entry exams into schools or there was a kind of national exam called the 11 plus, yeah. which if you passed, you went to a grammar school and if you didn't, you went to secondary modern. And I passed the 11 plus and my brother didn't. I didn't then take up the scholarship I won because I was sent to a different school. Right. When did it then dawn on you in, in your life where you kind of thought, oh, hang on a minute, I may have been robbed. <laughs> Do you feel robbed? I think... Because I, th I know that you, you wanted to become a doctor, but you didn't have the A-levels for it. And yes. So you became a psychologist instead. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think, I think perhaps Robert is putting it a bit strongly. I mean, I'm quite pleased with the, the route that accidentally that led me down. And you never know, you know, the road not taken. I probably would have been a rubbish doctor anyway. So <laughs> maybe it's a relief for the for the um, the sick public that I wasn't uh, unleashed on them. I think it's when I eventually got to university and was then studying and was in a very intense academic environment. I was aware of how much more academic training my colleagues had and how used they were to attacking things in a, in a very organised academic fashion, which, which I hadn't been exposed to mm. in my school mm. at all. <laughs> at 25, you entered the STEM field, and um, you were one of the very few women in a very much male-dominated field. Did you get much help from colleagues? Or? I think, to be fair, psychology was and still is a subject which is mainly dominated by females at the mm. undergraduate level. I think once I became an academic and went into lecturing circles, went and joined a university, at that point you started to be aware of the fact that there was, hopefully unconscious bias, in terms of being a female academic, which was very much in the minority, because although psychology, as I say, is predominantly female at the undergraduate level, as you move up the scale, it becomes more and more male-dominated. So I then did go into a sort of quite overtly minority group. Yeah. And then I became more aware of this kind of gender bias. Yeah. <laughs> what was that like? I think, again... It, it also intersected very much because we're talking about the 1980s. Mm. So it intersected with a sort of second wave of feminism, mm. uh, which I became very involved in. And I think at that point, it meant that my working life, I found echoes of my working life in discussions I had with other feminists and their working life and attitudes that people had towards them. So it all became part of that. And then really, I guess there was this awareness that women are very definitely treated very differently from men mm. and because it intersected with my kind of biological neuroscience uh, interests, research interests, I then got drawn into the sort of biological politics field where at that stage it was felt that um, women were treated badly, their, their biology was uh, identified as inferior, making them vulnerable, etc. So those kind of arguments really fed into my dawning awareness of... Yeah. of uh, uh, gender bias. <laughs> you spoke about your interest in how the brain works at a very early stage, <laughs> very early age. What was it about the brain that sparked your interest? I don't know. There was the idea that there was some sort of system within you that controlled what you did and who you were. 
and I suspect, thinking about it, it probably intersected with a very, very Catholic education where we all had a soul and your soul, you know, was something that God gave you and drove you around in your world and if you transgressed in any way. So I think thinking back, maybe it was this idea that there was some amazing system which controlled you, which I didn't think was a soul. In fact, I got chucked out of my catechism class quite early on for challenging ideas <laughs> like that. So I thought the brain was clearly it. So I thought it'd be fun to study. So it was scientific brain. based. You knew it that was. there was some sort of scientific yeah. basis to this difference. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Of course, your work has been widely accepted and touted by feminists, not so much by uh, <laughs> others um, and particularly by your by male peers. Why do you think that is? A lot of my male peers are very supportive. I think uh, certainly within the scientific community, I think there is a feeling that um, you are challenged them, but for, for political reasons. So so one of the, the best ways of, of challenging a scientist is to say, oh, you're letting your political ideologies trump scientific reality. So a way of devaluing what right. I say is by saying, oh, it undermines it's, it's your just, research. It's just politics and, and you know, go back to the evidence, right. which I have to say I do object to because it's very much it was looking at the evidence, which which kind of got me there in the first yeah. place. But more generally, I was quite taken aback by how fiercely people cling on to the idea, the Mars Venus idea, which Mars Venus is just a way of characterising it, that men and women are definitely different. Well, it's and if, identity, isn't it? I think I mean, it's, once you challenge identity, that's when people start to feel, well, they're being undermined. That's right. And also if, if as, you know, as we see, or as I describe in the book, right from the moment of birth, and even before, if you think about gender reveal parties, our, our lived experience is of boys and girls, men and women being treated differently. Mm. And therefore, if somebody comes along and says, actually, you know, they're not that different, uh, that just doesn't make sense. You know, we're surrounded by people who are male and female and, you know, my male colleagues are completely different from my female colleagues because we have this nice shortcut in our heads that these are quite neat categories, which generally seem to be appropriate. And so why should you abandon them for something much less certain? <laughs> So if there isn't much difference in the brain between the genders, what makes men men? What makes women women? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, to, 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 to clarify, I think every brain is different from every other brain. So because mm. sometimes people say, well, if you think men's and women's brains aren't that different, do you think they're the same? And I'm saying, no, I think every brain is different, but not because you're a male or a female. So I, I think that's an aspect to clarify. But I think we don't realise how much how our brain functions uh, reflects not only what's going on inside the brain, but also the world outside the brain. Mm -hmm. So if stereotypes encourage men to behave in a particular way and they're rewarded for behaving that way and similarly with women, then that's how our paths diverge to... Yeah different planets, as it were. <laughs> and do you think that's why then there are more men in, say, the scientific field, more women in the healthcare, childcare type field? Mm. Do you think that's all social construct? So there's always been that argument that women don't do science because they've got the wrong sort of brain. Mm. So women don't do science because they can't do science. But my argument is actually if you look at the culture of science and the fact that because of that thinking, there aren't very many role models. And certainly, if you look more closely at how the whole reward system, the progression system within science, it's very gender biased. Mm. So it's very much maybe women 
don't do science because they won't do science because they don't see science as a culture to which they belong. Mm. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other way around is is the kind of construction, logical, spatial thinking in men, which encourages them to go into science, is very much based on very early experience and continuing experience. And as we know, the brain changes according to the experiences you have. What looks like a sex difference in men may well be a training opportunity difference. So I think that's why men go more into science. And the same could be true of why women go more into caring roles. And this, of course, according to your theory, starts right from the very beginning, from birth and from gender reveal parties, which you love to watch on YouTube. <laughs> yes, gender reveal parties. I discovered them in the course of writing the book. I'd, n- I'd never come across them before. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think, in fact, I think quite recently, the uh, woman who started them in the States, mm. in, I think 2008, was really a celebration of the fact that she was expecting a child, uh, which is something that she'd hoped for for a long time. And, that, and she thought it would be quite fun if I had a party to celebrate because at 20 weeks, things seemed to be going well. And then maybe it would be fun to add a, you know, added interest about whether or not it was a boy or, or a girl. And that whole thing just took off. And they have become very extreme. I mean, I think there was somebody set off a cannon with either pink or blue cannonballs <laughs> in California and started a forest fire. And people saying, well, it's just a bit of fun. And, and of course they are. But I think they're very much uh, an indication of how society attaches huge amount of importance mm. to whether somebody's male or female. If 20 weeks before they even arrive in the world, mm. they're trying to find out which they are and to put them into a box and to make sure that they get given the right kind of presence and put in the right kind of clothes. But yeah. with respect to how early they start, I mean, one of the things we now know about babies is that they arrive into the world with hugely finely tuned what I call social radar Mm. uh, because that's how they survive getting themselves well embedded into the right kind of social network so all of the things in society which code differences that they need to pay attention to if they're also pretty much gendered which I would claim that they are then that's what babies are picking up yeah you mentioned a little earlier about the plasticity of the brain Uh, And that's how the brain sort of forms and that's how the brain sort of picks up information and then adapts to it, I suppose. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Explain that. Yes, well, I think that's something, uh, it's one of the areas which I think should really make us revisit this whole idea of male and female brains. Mm. Because we always had this idea right up to the beginning of this century, really, that a brain was something which is a biological product. It was the result of what I call a biological script unfolding. And that was sort of fixed. So... If you arrived at you know, a male brain and a female brain, which you got because you were a boy or a girl, then nothing was going to change that. Yeah. But now we know that the experiences we have and the things that we learn will change our brains quite dramatically, depending on, on the nature of the experience. And it could just be a, a, a training opportunity. I give talks in schools. And when I say how amazingly effective video games are at training spatial thinking, I can see the teachers rolling their eyes back in the classroom, (laughs) encouraging the children to play video games. But you can actually track that at brain level. So you can show how uh, exposure to some kind of training opportunity changes the brain. Mm. So of course, if the experiences you have are gendered because boys do this kind of thing or girls do that kind of thing, then brains will reflect that just as much as the kind of genotype, uh, male-female genotype. And that's very much what I'm saying. If we live in a gendered world, then the experiences we have will reflect those gendered expectations. How do you then explain the transgender world? 
There's two issues there. First of all, right again from the beginning, it's the idea that your biological sex determined your social gender. Mm. And we only used to have one word for our biology and our social roles, and that was sex. And then in the you know second wave of feminism, they were saying we should think about social roles as something separate, and the term gender came in. But there was the idea that it could only be one or the other. Mm. And I think what we're seeing in the 21st century, that the two are very tightly linked. So transgender or the whole idea of gender fluidity or changes in gender identity seems counterintuitive. And until we separate the idea that your biological sex determines your gender, we will continue to be surprised by the fact that people want to be a different gender from what their biology indicates. You've been called the neurotrash warrior. And you... <laughs> I love it. I can see yes, you I got awarded the... that yeah. today. It's great. Yes, Lady Geek of the Week and Neuro Trash Warrior are my favourite titles. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine you in all leather too. Yeah, with right. Okay, yeah. With a brain in one <laughs> yes. hand, yes. Um, now, you fight the use of neuroscience to justify gender stereotypes. Why do you think the media in particular persists on playing this mm. gender game? I think uh, it's, again, entangled with lots of things. Once brain imaging arrived at the end of the last century, very much the beginning of this century, because it was looked as though we had instant access to real-time brain activity. It resonated obviously well with at last scientists have caught up and explained why men and women are different. We always knew they were and here we are, here's their brains and there was lots of nice images which seemed to prove that. So at the beginning of this century um, the term neuro, if you attach that to anything, it became a whole new way of thinking of the world. So we had neuroaesthetics and neurophilosophy, mm. neuroeducation, neuroliteracy neuro kitchen cabinetry for example <laughs> and I think it all came together and it meant there was an opportunity for these amazing headlines for people to have their biases confirmed and you know as as human beings that's quite comfortable that people come along and say things we already knew were true mm -hmm. to be true and then it sort of entered the public consciousness yeah. Neuroscience is such a complex subject. It can, you know, it can be very overwhelming for the average person. Is that why you wrote A Gendered Brain? You know, it's a general book for the general reader. Yes, I think I started off actually mainly giving talks, uh, getting involved in public communication of science. And part of that was because of the neurotrash, because it wasn't being made clear to people. I think perhaps it was a teacher coming out of me saying people really need to understand what we're really showing. I get anxious that I wrote, you know, doing almost a neurotrash type thing and oversimplifying. But I think just saying to people, this is science. Sometimes scientists get it wrong. Sometimes people reading the science get it wrong. And given that it's your brains we're talking about, it would be good if you could understand the key messages that we have for you. Yeah. You're the mother of two girls. I am. <laughs> yes. What was that like, raising two girls you know, with this awareness of this stereotype, how did you arm them, I suppose, to, to go out into the world? Probably better if you ask them, yeah. actually. <laughs> or maybe not. Or was it difficult for them, though? I think, um, again, this was in the 1980s, so there was actually... A, a useful army of support for the idea that you didn't have to bring girls up in a very traditional mm. way. So even the rewriting of fairy tales and 
they may say that they never got a chance to know the real fairy tales because I was always <laughs> giving them the paper bag princess that's or something right. instead. That's right. They could never be princesses. They, they could, could never, never be, be sleeping beauties. That's right, yeah. yes. I have got a picture of both of them dressed as superheroes, <laughs> one as Spider-Man and one as Superman. <laughs> I think the fact that there were two girls and they were very different was an education in itself, you know, because if you, as some people say to me, I've got a boy and a girl and they're different, therefore that means boys are different from girls. So we do tend to generalise from our own personal experience. So that, from my point of view, was useful. Going forward, do you think there'll come a time where there won't be a gender? We'll, we'll mm. stop seeing genders yeah. instead and, and start seeing people? I think that would be great. I mean, if people start to acknowledge, A, that everybody's different from everybody else, but not because they're a male or a female, mm. I think that would be a great way forward. And I do get quite a lot of parents talking about raising their children gender neutral and, you know, mentally, I think, good luck with that. You know, what kind of box are you going to put them yeah. in? And they're not going to watch any television or play with any toys. But I do think in order to get away from this, my aim would be gender irrelevance. So that, you know, the absolute opposite of gender reveal parties, yeah. it doesn't matter what sex somebody is. It's what they can do and what they can contribute to their society. And that's what they're celebrated for and rewarded for would be a great way forward because I think the gender stereotypes can be very harmful um, just at, sometimes just at the level of a waste of human capital for well example. it's limiting isn't it it is mm. it is limiting for both sexes and I think that's important I mean my examples are mainly to do with girls but I think it's quite clear that they're equally limiting for boys and somehow the image that men can't be empathic um, is is a a very insulting <laughs> suggestion and obviously inaccurate too. Do you think then the challenges that women face, you know, from, from back in the day till now, do you think those challenges will then just fade away? No, we will actually have more gender equality that way. Mm. I think that's the only way, um, although, of course, we couldn't call it gender equality. We'd have no. to call it... <laughs> no, what would it be? <laughs> We'd have what to think would, of another term. Equality, really. People equality. Mm. I think, yes, I think that's the only way forward because a lot of the pushback, in a way, is people saying, but this is how society is. And strangely enough, mothers in particular saying, I want to prepare my daughter for society so I don't want to encourage her to be an outcast to be different and so therefore you know I want to push her down what I see as traditionally feminine roles because then she'd be happier mm -hmm. so trying to point out the problems with that statement belief is hard yeah I was just going to say also the idea that you're fighting against the idea that women have got some unique set of skills which could become their selling point, their unique selling point. If you then say, actually, they're not unique to you because you're a woman, they're very important skills, but actually men have got some of them as well. And men have got similarly, uh, women have got skills that are attributed solely to men. Um, that undermines quite a lot of what people are trying to do. So, You know, you, you talk about mothers there and let's talk about parents. How then can parents raise children without limiting them to their stereotypical mm. genders, I suppose, and also without enforcing their own stereotypes, <laughs> you know, their own thinking, because obviously they've grown up that yeah. way and that's what they know. So how... <laughs> Yes. The question is, how do you become a woke parent? Um, I think I think the without limits is, is a great way of thinking about it, mm. is actually to be aware for yourself and for your children how limiting the stereotypes are and to make sure whenever they're confronted with limits, they realise they are limits and they're limits, but they're limits imposed from outside. So watching a film with children and saying 
don't you think it's silly that the heroes are always boys or why is it the girls that have to be rescued or so actually pointing out to them the illogicalities or, or the inaccuracies in the world. And children are very willing to learn. I mean, if you don't challenge it, they think that's how the world is. You know, my bus driver is a man, so only bus drivers can be men. So you then need to say, oh, look, there's a, you know, there's a female bus driver or, or something along those lines. So I think that's it. Lifting the limits is the key issue. But almost not emphasising gender because it then becomes kind of special, you know, that, Ooh, this is something which is forbidden and yeah. children love that too. So you have to be quite careful of that. Just looking back on your career and where we are now, do you think that's changing? Do you think we're heading towards that way where parents are raising kids that are not limited by their genders? I think, well, of course, I'm talking from a sort of perspective of, a, you know, Western developed um, world. So we need to bear that in mind. I think the idea that the conversation is happening is is very important. That may be a way of separating out, you know, the biology from the the world. <laughs> still acknowledging, she says hastily, that biology is still part of it. So I'm not a sex difference denier. But I think the emphasis to date has been on it's all biology. Biology is in the driving seat. I would not in any way say we shouldn't do research into sex differences really important to understand them mm. but to understand the role they play in a whole load of other complex factors I think we're having the conversation but it's a conversation which still attracts a lot of very vocal criticism Gina Rippon thank you so much for joining us thank you very much for having me thank you Gina Rippon was a guest at All About Women our annual feminist festival you can find a link to her onstage conversation with Natasha Mitchell in the show notes I'm Edwina Thrusby and I'll see you next time.